You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad and one of the great things about travelling the world from time to time is you get to bump into fantastic interesting people and the most interesting people in my life come from County Galway. Um, I, I, I kind of um, allow Galway City to qualify under Galway and I have to link up with Seamus Kelleher and Seamus um, originally Rock Barton Road, Galway City, a long career and we're going to hear about that, a very interesting career and um, he is um, his life is music I think that would be the first thing to say about uh, Seamus his life is music but he is also an assistant adjunct professor at Texas A&M College of Medicine where he teaches courses on mental wellness and suicide prevention and um, so we're, we've uh, a lot to learn uh, thank you so much and great to be here Seamus um, Galway City um, you and I, there's not much difference in our age, so yeah. I can relate. And uh, we used to go down and stay on the Threadneedle Road when um, when I was a Gasson and go down to the Black Rock stand. stand. Right, right. Um, but um, uh, you come from a family of five. Yeah. Four yeah. girls yourself. Yeah. But your mum and dad are not native Galwegians. No, my mother was from Cavan, Mount Nugent and Cavan. My dad was in Valley Furter, just outside Dingle down in Kerr. Yeah, a beautiful part of the belt and um, rather than go through a long waste and and take time from how did they end up in Galway? Um, My dad was in the post office so he started off in Killarney when he was about 20 and within a few years an offer came up in Galway and he always liked Galway so he chose Galway and then uh, he met my mother Uh, he was in the army then during the emergency that'd be during the second World War right. and he met her she was a nurse in Dublin right. and they met there and uh, they ended up in Galway long, uh, at right. the end of the war they got married and they um, moved to Galway permanently because my father ended up in more during the emergency right. he got time off he was with the bank Yes. and he got time off it would, and it would have been the same with my dad except he was stationed in Mullingar oh right well daddy was up in Renmore yeah. Um, but yeah and actually when you say that there were so many things when I read your book because Seamus has also so three um, album CDs under his belt and a book and the book is called Shine the Light and I've had the pleasure of reading it um, but when I read the book and I was reading down through uh, your story uh, there were so many commonalities it was, it was scary uh, from, being a, from, from being a blow-in to, to all sorts of things like that you ended up going to Colossianium yes that was um, I guess what would you call that secondary school in yeah. And uh, it was all Irish, yeah. which is a bit of a problem for me because despite my dad being a fluent speaker, I wasn't. I had, I had no Irish, so it was a problem. And uh, at the time, it was a miserable place to be, despite the beauty of Galway. With the school, I, I don't remember one good day in my high school years. It was just miserable, and uh, there was a lot of corporal punishment, leather straps just being bandied about all day long, and uh, yeah, it was just a miserable environment. But um, yeah, and some of that was me maybe just because I wasn't up to the task I think well I think you know I'd say there were a lot of commonalities I was a boarding school uh, for my last three years and I was in Bandlestow and Garbley I'd have to say I have no negative uh, nothing negative to say about the, the staff um, it's certainly not corners of you yeah now you were a day boy yes yeah, yeah. so you, you were on the other side of the wall yeah yeah because uh, you know I, I, I 
as I kind of get into this, you know, I was from age 14, I was really into the music. So academically, I wouldn't have been that good. And, um, you know, so I think that suffered. And, you know, because I wasn't, that's when I got smacked a lot. And um, yeah, so I wasn't good. And I think it was only towards the last year of high school where I started becoming fairly well known in the music that they stopped they didn't touch me because I think they were afraid right. the word would get out right. and uh, you know it was because I was just, I was a big fish in a small pond at that stage and, well, and uh, my name was starting to get around the place. and Seamus that was a time also when um, education particularly secondary school in Ireland if it wasn't the vocational school if you were in Nord school it was very much expected that you were going down an academic route yeah. And if you didn't conform to being an academic, yeah. you weren't within the parameters. Exactly. And I certainly didn't. That's yeah. That's all right. No. So, um, as you say, you were you were falling in love with music. Um, where did the love affair start? Um, there was always music in the home growing up. You know, at night time, in the early days, we didn't even have television. So we'd all play instruments at night time. I did the tin whistle when I was about nine. And then um, my sister all played instruments and then I started taking piano lessons when I was nine and I did that till I was about 14 or 15 uh, but it was really when the guitar came along that it just instantly there was a connect uh, I loved the music before that but I never thought of it as a career and then but within a I'd say within a few months of picking up the guitar I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life you know? where did you get your first guitar? Uh, in Raptories in Galway. I remember it. Yeah, it was the bike shop. The everything. It's on the corner there in their shops, isn't that's it? That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Right near where Ticoli is. Yeah. Now in Galway. And um, so, but there was a great guy there, Mike McMahon, and uh, he helped me, you know, get into the right guitar, and he did the same for many others. And for years afterwards, he was my go-to to get all my guitars and all that kind of stuff. And Seamus, Galway now is buzzing with music, and there's very much tradition, but back in what would have been the mid 60s in the the 60s was Galway as as alive it was it was especially when I came into because you know in 69 or 68 so it was let's say around 1969 is when I started playing music fairly seriously and there was so much music in Galway then and they used to have a lot of show bands come through Mm town so if you had a little band you could open up for the show bands they called a relief band yes and uh, that opened up all kinds of opportunities not just to play music but to hear other bands play music at a very high level and then there was you know sessions in town it was a very kind of progressive Galway in many ways I used to go to a blues session every Tuesday night even in high school my parents were fantastic you know as long as I let them know what time I'd be home and sometimes it'd be very late yeah. but they knew that you know I didn't drink I didn't do drugs I didn't do anything like that so they never had to worry about me yeah. and um, but there was, that's where I got my training in Galway and you know, I, look, I look back on it now and it's, I realise how lucky I was because a lot of young musicians don't have that kind of uh, opportunities when they get honing their craft yeah. but I was surrounded by amazing musicians and all that there was, there was a huge population of musicians in Galway back then there were 500 dance bands in Ireland yes. and there were about 10 of them in Galway 10 dance bands yes. so that's do the math that's about 10 
70 or 80 musicians in Galway professional professional yeah because most of those the bands back then the show bands those guys were working practically five nights a week yeah or seven and um, but they were um, so many of them were really very helpful to me I was a young kid and, you yeah. know, and I was a bit of a whiz on the guitar at the time so they took an interest in me right and so I was very lucky I, I look back and you know that was the where St. Dennis was the dark side of my upbringing and uh, the music was the uh, bright side yeah because when you mention again the number of bands in Galway and the places where the dances were because I remember there was Seapoint there was the Hangar and you, you worked at you were in the Oslo the Oslo used to do dances as well that's right because my that, brother worked there at West yeah. and that was a great spot because I used to bar, bartend there and, yeah. and um, so I got to hear all the musicians there and got to know them very well because yeah. I'd work with them every week so you know I was just being and that was just out in South Hill and when you got down the road then and got, got in towards the city they were all the more intimate the smaller ones yes, yes. Yeah. Sure. you mentioned blues where was the blues the blues came from from day one basically I used to listen to B.B. Uh, King right but in Galway where was, where was the blues there was just a lot of great blues guitar players there was a guy called Johnny Finn and um, there were just some great players around yeah. Galway and yeah. it was a great little blues scene yeah. and um, but yeah for me I started listening to B.B. King Albert King Captain of course and then Hendrix but it was Roy Gallagher who really the Irish guitar player from Cork who really kind of shone the light for me and right, right. that kind of he became the, the force of nature on uh, for me and um, influenced me you guys had the opportunity to open for Tim Lizzie yeah yeah, that was great on more than one occasion three times yeah uh, that, I think it was 1973 and it was two times it was in the hangar you mentioned that yeah uh, which is right next to my house uh, it was a, a kind of a ballroom an old airport hangar converted to a ballroom and um, it, it was about six months before Whiskey in a Jar went into the charts right. I opened up I was at the band called Skull so we opened up for them and they, they could not have been nicer really right. nice they weren't so well known in Galway at the time although people were starting to talk about them yeah. but then that changed um, the next time they came around they still didn't about a month later they still didn't have the hit but there was a lot more people there was about a thousand people in the right. ballroom then right. versus 500 the first time and you could see there was a buzz and I remember just uh, talking to Phil and it, you know and he said he was so nice to us because he was um, I think his parents were from an Indian background so he was the only really black bass yes. player in Ireland except my bass player was from Tr- his dad was from Trinidad right parents and so we had two three piece stands Finn Izzy was three piece at the time and they had a black bass there and I had so which was a crazy novelty in right. Right. And my my guy looked just like Phil Leonard except he was shorter but he had the afro hair and he had a real good looking guy and Phil Leonard was such a rock star person yeah. so it was kind of very funny that they but then they um, right after that show then they Whiskey in the Jar got to number two in the British charts. Right. First time ever for an Irish band. 
And so they came back about three months later and they asked for us specifically right. to open up right. But now there was like two or three thousand people. Yeah. And it was in a place called the Talk of the Town in Golden. And that was crazy. You know, I remember going on stage and just like looking out and uh, seeing this mass of people. But you know, at that age, I figured it was just another year or two before that's me. You know? <laughs> but but uh, anyway. And I want to take you back because before you got that gig, yeah. uh, you guys used practice. And uh, I, from what I read, you had you had found yourself some uh, desolate, abandoned location to practice. Oh, yeah. And there was this, a young lady who used to come and listen to you and want to ask her to sing a song, and you guys weren't interested. Oh, yeah. That's, so we used to practice in a place called the uh, Oris and Dominic Street. And it, it was at the time as a decrepit old building. And we were at the very top of it. And um, so after practice, I would stay just to, after band practice to practice on my guitar solos. And there was this girl, beautiful young girl, who used to sit there for hours listening to me practice. And I, I just remember she always had this lovely floor dress and long red hair and glasses. And uh, But I had no interest in women. All of them, the guitar was my mistress. And she probably had no interest in me. Uh, you know, even though I used to get teased by everybody. But it was only years later. This is because I went to America then, you know, when I was 20. But it was like... I was but back before you say who she was, she did ask one day if she could sing. Oh, sorry. This, yeah. girl, this girl did ask, could she, you know, when the band was crashing, could she sing a song, right? And you guys, of course, said well, y yes. Thankfully, it wasn't. No. <laughs> the, lead, the lead singer, the lead singer, I can't use profanity on the air, but in no uncertain terms, made it clear that she had no business even asking and um, to, to sing with the band because you know we were starting to make a bit of headway in Galway and uh, anyway as it turns out this became uh, this lady became an international blues singer today known as uh, Mary Coughlin back then she was Mary Doherty yeah. and uh, just as we speak she's actually doing a sold out tour of Australia yeah. and she's a world renowned jazz yeah. singer and uh, so we got a great kick at, you know I've talked to her over the years and it was her that told me the story and I said I hope it wasn't me that told you you couldn't sing so she said no <laughs> no Mary is a lovely lady and I had, yeah. the, had the opportunity of sitting down with her and having a chat and uh a recording. Um, before we move on to talk about um, what was going on in your head at that stage, mm -hmm. is there a piece of music you'd like to share? Is there a piece of music? Yeah, like yeah. Um, there's well, here's a fun one. There's um, on the album. There's a walk in the old salt hill prom because we've been talking about Galway. Yeah. And uh, I recorded that on my most recent album, and it just talks about those happy memories of Galway you know walking on the prom going to the discos listening to all those bands so that'd be a great piece to kind of Shane, we're, we're chatting with Seamus Kelleher you're listening to Irish Radio Canada Home and Abroad and we'll be back after this 
this is an Irish radio candidate on the broad. Welcome back. And we're chatting with Seamus Kelleher. You heard there, uh, walking along the old Galway prom. It's nothing like the prom in Galway. It's, it's an iconic thing. And nothing like it. Nothing very, like it. Very special place. Very special place. We were talking there about um, what would have been very much highlights and happy times. But that's not what's, what's happening with you, Seamus, at that time. Yeah. Now, there were some highlights. Yeah. Right? There were some moments. But in general, once I turned about 17, I started to really struggle with um, depression. You know, I, I didn't know what it was at the time. It was, I know now it was depression. But um, and it kind of came out of nowhere. And I think it was a combination of the um, the school situation, and and then the north of Ireland was really bad at the time on the verge of civil war. That's when my dad was called back up into active duty, and he was well into his fifties at that stage. So things were very serious, and it was a, a legitimate fear that everything would spread to the south. And I had a horrible, like a lot of people, had a horrible fear of violence. So I think that combines, um, and it was very introvert to begin with. Um, the depression started coming up, piling up on me, and um, it, it was very hard, you know. And I'd wake up in the morning, I didn't want to get out of bed, stay in bed as much as I could. And the only thing that kind of helped me was the music, because you know, as soon as I'd walk off stage, it was back to the depression, and you know, so it was very hard. And for somebody who is blessed not to have experienced what was going on in your head that was like what when you would wake up in the morning and you'd look at the day ahead yeah yeah that's a great question um, I think a few things just fear of the future you know uh, no joy in the things that previously brought me joy like always practicing guitar mm-hmm. I loved to practice guitar I didn't enjoy that being on stage is a bit more uplifting but um, food the non in food um, I couldn't understand why people would be laughing and smiling because I thought there was nothing to laugh or smile about and just you know, it just felt like there was a permanent cloud over me, over me. and I couldn't see any hope I lost all hope for the future and uh, you know so they're the kind of classic signs of depression mm-hmm. and you know it just it was just a very dark place to be and, and it would last sometimes all day sometimes it would lift in the afternoon and you think oh it's gone never going to come back then four hours later we'll come back you know it was crazy and at that time there was very few places if anywhere where a young adult could talk this kind of stuff through you're absolutely right and uh, it was the Ireland of the, you know, the early 70s and there was a stigma attached to anything like that it was kind of if somebody was kind of they'd call it blue or something like that and um, it was like people were talking hushed tones now the other thing that's important to point out is you know, I was very good at masking the depression you know people didn't really know because I, I was introvert anyway and, uh, and I had friends so mm. like I was a loner and like that but I, even some of my friends didn't know I was as bad as I was and my parents didn't know I was as bad as I was and that went on for a few years but 
it was when I was um, I was with a band called Rock and Roll Circus, and that was my first really big successful band. We were traveling all over Ireland, and um, my mom died, and I was very close with my mom, incredibly close. She was my biggest fan. She made all my stage clothes and everything. So I think that became a trigger. Then things got even worse. I stopped eating almost completely, and within a few weeks, uh, I had a nervous breakdown, and that's when everything just collapsed. They had to rush me back to go with the band I was on tour, and uh, and this is kind of getting to your question uh, in a kind of roundabout way, but I think it's a good way to explain it. Um, a few days after I came back from Galway, I was on medicine, uh, but I was getting worse by the minute. And uh, my dad came into the kitchen and he said, Seamus, he said, you know, we can get you to the hospital, Galway Regional Hospital, which is a good hospital. He said, but I think there's something wrong with your nerves. Mm -hmm. You've been very sad for the last mm -hmm. year, he said. He said, and obviously, you know, since mom died, it's it's been really bad. He said, but I think it's something you need help with the nerves. And he said, there's a hospital in Dublin called St. Patrick's, mm -hmm. and that's what they're supposedly good at. And I know somebody there. Right. And I knew what St. Pat's was, you know, because we used to call it the loony bin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some people would go there, you'd never see them again. Some other people went there and came back. Yeah. Great. But you know, as kids, as teenagers, you don't look at the world through a holistic prism. And anyway, um, but I remember saying to my dad, I said, Dad, if I don't get help right now, I may not be here next week. Right. He had just lost his wife four months earlier. Yeah, yeah. And now he was in danger of losing his son. Yeah. But thanks to his wisdom, and I really call it wisdom because it's like we're talking about 1974 at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew that I needed di a different kind of help. He wasn't afraid to talk about it. He didn't care what his fellow taxi drivers might be saying yeah. about his son. Yeah. He just wanted me to get well. So I went in psychiatric hospital for about five weeks. And um, I w I w we wouldn't be having this conversation if I didn't uh, do that. No, you uh, did mention as a taxi driver, because I know we'd lost over because we're focusing on your story. But your dad um, established what became, I guess, a coordinated taxi service in Galway. That's right. Yeah. Um, where uh, rather than each individual hackney kind of hustling around it. And as such, uh, I, I think I would be right to say he also then was instrumental in um, facilitating or enabling um, the taxi service to be on the lookout or encouraging them to be on the lookout for people that need help, particularly yeah, yeah, mental but, health. Yeah, I, but I think it was, that was just his nature. Yeah. You know, I don't know, I don't know how coordinated it was, but he was very highly respected. He was known for helping people all over Galway. So I think more in, in that kind of thing. But he, you know, in his own way, and that's what I try to do today. We'll get to that in a second. But he really inspired me because he was always helping people. You know, mm -hmm. it could be a woman who whose husband was abusive. You know, and he would give her free taxi rides to get supplies. That she yeah. needed. And I could go on for years after my dad passed in 1985, and people would be telling me stories years mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and randomly people didn't even mm -hmm. know I was their son 
uh, that, that maybe ask, you know, where do you live in this? Oh, that's where Jim Kelleher used to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of great men, he was, he used yeah. to help me on that. So yeah. uh, I was very blessed. And when you mentioned that your, your dad had the <laughs> emotional intelligence mm. to identify that you needed help and that he uh, suggested St. Pat's, I went through my head instantly with that. Was that very girl who asked, could she sing? Um, also acknowledged that she had spent some time on the slope exactly. and has a wonderful album of her own work where she wrote about her experience in right. in um, the, the hospital in Ballon Slope. Right. Um, so um, you know the where paths interweave is fascinating through life. Um, as time went on and you got help, uh, it brought you out of the hellhole that you were in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, you know, it's not like you come out of the hospital and you're cured. You know, I'm not cured from depression. I live with depression. Mm. Uh, it's always there somewhere. Um, and it's been kind of episodic throughout my life. But I've always been able to recognize the signs of it. And most of the time successfully advert it. Uh, but as recently as about 10 years ago, I ended up back in hospital. Mm. Uh, because I, I was in a situation work-wise that I shouldn't have been in. It was a, it was a very abusive situation. And I ended up, I should have walked away and I didn't. And I paid the price. I was in hospital for five weeks. And, and uh, again, and uh, but you know, I, at least I knew to get help. And my wife knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was mm-hmm. very supportive. And, um, and I haven't looked back since then, you know. Um, I know I, we could spend hours because it's, there's such a, a wealth of um, living experience you have to share. So I want to make sure that I try to cover as much yep. as we can. So in the mid 70s, you emigrated. Yeah. Um, it stimulated, it, as I understand, because in, for music, you guys got a residency in, in the US. Yeah. And at the end of the residency, you went back and that you, you said, that's where I want to be. Yeah, yeah. So I came back to America. Uh, on my own in 1975 as you said the band came out in 74 my back broke up I decided I needed a fresh start and I felt when I had been in America on that short tour I felt the energy of the place I said I can be anonymous here I can start all over forget about St. Andrews forget about Galway forget about the north of Ireland for a while and uh, so that's what I did and also I knew I could study music over in America so I came over and um, basically just started you know, I bartended for a while for a few months then I started getting music gigs and then basically music full time which I've pretty much done all that time since then in the 40 years And uh, but that first few years were very difficult because I was illegal so I couldn't go home you know to Ireland see my family that was very hard so it was five years I couldn't do that and, um, and I couldn't really do anything but uh, you know permanently I couldn't go on tour with bands or anything like that but I did make it you know put a name for myself in New York and start to work I was very busy right. and uh, eventually I got into music school uh, music college and that afforded me a visa right. and then I was able to go back to Ireland and came out uh, took a degree in music education I did some teaching for a few years 
but then I was with the band that was getting fairly successful MTV were working with us and all that right. kind of stuff so I just went back into the music all time again but you did take one trip back to Ireland for, uh, to recuperate yes they, they, I had exactly. one one kind of slip up and yeah. I, I think it was I had gone back to Ireland after five years and you know it was like the prodigal son returned and I got everybody just taking care of me and celebrating and yeah. all that but part of it was I was still expecting my mom to walk in the door and I was expecting my sisters and my dad to be grieving but they had moved on right. and in some ways I hadn't because I'd been away for five years yeah. so yeah. I think it kind of is a total weird thing that happened that it just all came back at me yeah. and I wasn't able to handle it so I went back to Ireland for about a month and uh, once again got the help I didn't have to go into hospital but I remember the doctor he was fantastic he was in his great little for any Galway people and Greg said to me he said Seamus you have to grab the bull by the horns he said your family moved on you didn't he said in a way you did in America in your own life but mentally you didn't yeah. and he said the only way if you don't do it now you won't do it again so he said I would book a flight I left his office and went down and booked my flight home right. and that was very hard because uh, I was still on the meds when I came back to America but after, after about three weeks he was right I, I, I got myself back no as far as I recall as well <coughs> what age were you at that stage? I was uh, 25 right so a young man and yeah. still now you got back you studied you got your degree and um, now do I, and your dad came over for your my graduation yeah that was my because you know they never put pressure on me to go to college I put pressure on myself I tried to go to college in Galway but dropped out after a semester but because um, all I thought about was music but you know my dad value, and my mom both valued the education so I remember when I told my dad that I was going back to college he couldn't believe it but then four years later to bring him out for my graduation and he was just I remember seeing him walk into the stadium on the day of the graduation there was about 2,000 people there and he was just I could see his you know, he had this one of those trilby hats I could see it in the stands and uh, we made eye contact it's a moment I'll never forget ever Mm-hmm. Um, part of the study then uh, you did some teaching from then on um, but you also went on to and studied music as therapy yeah, I did a little bit of that in my undergraduate yeah, just for about a year and I think that helped you know. but I, I knew I couldn't make a profession out of it it's very demanding yeah. music therapy uh, you know you're dealing with a lot of people that are struggling it's a very slow learning but it's a wonderful way of helping people with autism and all kinds of different right. and but I want and I also want to jump fairly quickly to when you were doing your masters or you were doing the thesis yeah. and you went to present and the standard format for presentation for that is to to um, stand up in front of whoever and um, talk with but you asked permission to do something very different yeah yeah I, uh, I asked my professor who was a real tough he was uh, a marine I believe uh, former Marine and Terry Moran wonderful wonderful man um, but tough as nails and I asked him could I do a video I said I want to talk about how uh, music carries emotion 
that we don't really understand. And uh, he said, Kelleher, you're nuts. He said, you better take a course in phone making. And he said, come back to me after you do that. So I did, came back with a proposal, what I wanted to do exactly. And um, he said, approved. So then I had to do, learn how to make a film. I called in some favors, some friends, cameramen, editors, people that I work with. And I came up with this idea to interview six homeless ladies in New York from a American Red Cross shelter and then show their lives what, and then look at what people perceive their lives to be and the difference and then I wrote a soundtrack so it was very much an experimental piece there was no right or wrong answer mm-hmm. but it ended up it was supposed to be five minutes long it ended up being a half an hour and it was used by the American Red Cross as a training for all their staff in the homeless division and some universities use it and it was, it was broadcast nationally in America Briefly, I wanted to cover your TV. You, you um, were hosting TV. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of came about. Some friends of mine, um, this lovely lady, and turned. She was working with this TV show in New York called Aaron's Focus, which is focused on Ireland. And uh, they, they'd interview kind of politicians, musicians, whatever, uh, every week. And um, first, I don't know why, really, she asked me to come down and just kind of, you know, maybe interview somebody. I was a musician, that's right. So I did. And uh, so I just loved it. You know, I, I just loved being on camera. And I found it very natural. I found it much more comfortable on camera than being off camera talking to people. And so I finished the interview with the musicians. I think it might have been Eileen Ivers or somebody. I think it was. And, um, and I knew Eileen, so it was, it was easy. And then they said, can you stay up there for a while? And I said, sure. So they kept sending people up for me to interview. And I didn't know who they were. But they tell me, this is Paddy Smith. You know, he's a politician. Right. I just asked him, Paddy, what do you do? Tell me yeah, more. Right. And this went on for hours. And then the next week, they had me come back again. And this started, turned into something. And I loved it. Right. And it lasted about a year. And then there were some issues with the producer and all that uh, nothing to do with me but I was kind of warned that I probably should not be and that was one of the hardest decisions I ever made in my life because I never fully got back into the media like that and it was the only thing that brought me some similar joy than the music we're going to take another break yeah. what are we playing what piece of music um, there's there's a oh there's a piece of music called Shine the Light. Yeah. And we'll probably talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah. You're listening to Irish Radio Tender from Abroad and we're chatting with Seamus Kelleher. You're listening to Irish Radio Canada from abroad, and we're chatting with Seamus Keller from Galway, Rockbarton Road, and uh, now living in the US. And Seamus, I want to move on to another phase of your life. Um, up to this point, you mentioned earlier on your mom and dad had no worries about you going downtown in Galway because they knew you'd be home, you weren't drinking and drugging. But I noticed there was a day when um, you had a rough day for one, and you went in and you wanted a cup of coffee, and you went into a barn in New York, and you asked for a coffee, and they said they don't serve coffee. 
Yeah. What happened next? Well, I, I was really surprised because at that stage it was fairly well known in New York and I could get coffee anywhere I wanted. Especially in an Irish bar because you know, all the bartenders knew that the place where I was playing. But anyway, this guy had none of it. And I said, well, give me an Irish coffee then. So I had the Irish coffee and then it tasted really good so I had the second one. And uh, all I remember is getting on the getting back on the subway feeling very happy and very relaxed despite that I'd just come from the dentist um, and uh, so that was the beginning of my drinking career and you were in your early 30s then I was 32 right and that started what a um, 30 25 30 years it was about 25 year love affair with alcohol yeah. and um, it was you know people say yeah, I ended up becoming an alcoholic people say well when did you know that you were an alcoholic and if I was really truthful I'd say after a year maybe even before that after a year drinking but I enjoyed it so much it got me it got me out of myself because I was so shy and it made me it really transformed my life and I had a great time drinking alright I'm not going to say I didn't I'm not going to be revisionist about it and it, it kind of allowed me to socialize for the first time in my life really with all kinds of different people and and it wasn't like I was drunk all the time it's, it's just it kind of gave me the confidence that I lacked but um, then as time went on um, the problem was that I never there was no off switch you know and it was I never thought about drinking in the mornings yeah, I'd go weeks without drinking never, never even think about it so it was a different kind of alcoholism you know there's, there's different kinds of alcoholics and uh, but it was like you know I was always I just want one more I didn't want the party to end and it was almost like it was making up for last time when I was a kid and I was afraid then that if I stopped drinking because I knew that that's what had to happen at some point I was afraid if I stopped drinking that there wouldn't be any fun anymore I wouldn't be able to enjoy my life anymore and during that period um, would it, it would be fair to say I suppose that you were places that you wish I hadn't been you were in behaviours you wish I hadn't been involved in you were engaged in activities you you know you were not safe yes yeah, I, I, you know talk about cat with nine lights you're looking at and um, you know the, I think the thing I regret most is a few things driving my car when I was drunk I never got pulled over I should have um, put my family at risk and when I was sometimes driving with them in it it still bothers me uh, probably most of all was I put my wife through hell she never knew if I was going to you know what said I was going to come home and, and that went down for many years and um, you know I can't go back and undo that and it's it's um, I don't know why I'm still here but you know thankfully I did I got I got sober my kids were still young enough that they didn't really know what was going on with the drink and I was able to be there for them because I've been sober almost nine years now and um, 
So, uh, yeah, sobriety has been a blessing. It's turned my life around. I still, I don't know if I'm any fun, but I have as much fun as I ever had and more. We'll talk a bit more about that in the paper. But I want to bring you back to Dennis. Given that you, as you see, even said earlier on, that depression is something that's potentially constantly sitting there waiting. And during a period of active alcohol abuse, depression is still waiting around the corner. Oh, absolutely. I think that's what happened in the latter few years of my drinking. So this will be probably, what year are we now? <laughs> About 2014, I guess, is when I got sober. But let's say from 2010 to 2014, I think the depression and the alcohol were working together. I don't know which was driving which, you know, it doesn't matter. But I know that um, you know, I'd be getting really down about you know, the I realized work wasn't working out. You know, I was a speechwriter in the corporate thing. And I, I think I just aged out of it. it just, my, my mind wasn't there. I just wanted to play music. I'm very unhappy. And I drink, you know. And then the, I think the depression will kick in. So I don't know which was which. It just, but it, like I said, it really doesn't matter. But drink and alcohol, or any drug, um, is a lethal combination. And I mean lethal. Mm-hmm. It, it can kill you and almost kill me. Now, when you said almost kills you, I know that there are an awful lot of people who are behind bars um, and it's attributable to addiction of one form or another because it causes people to, in many cases, commit crime. But there's an awful lot of cases of suicide out there as well yeah. because of the combination you just talked about. Were there times where you would say you were suicidal? Yeah, I'd say the way I, what I call it in, in my case is suicide ideation. So in other words, I never intentionally said I'm going to attempt suicide. Okay? But there was many times the suicide became my option if I couldn't get better. You know, in other words, I, I just wished I was dead. I wished it was all over. And I thought about how I would do it. But I never took any action to actually do it. So slightly different, but you never know where that line is, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It could be just uh, one well, bad day. And, you know, so, so put it this way, for those who cross it, they're not here anymore. And that's the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, or, yeah. yeah. And during this time, you say, you, you know, you're, you're married, you're, you're kids of your own. Um, being going around with a very dark cloud over your head um, is not a very pleasant um, person to be hovering around the house. So the wife and kids would have seen you in, in your darkness. They would have, but once again, and this is the danger, you talk about suicide, but this is one of the dangers when somebody is struggling. Certain people are very good at masking it, and I was. Right. Well, I'm a very kind of jovial person. Yeah. Uh, I like fun, I laugh a lot. Right. You know? And um, so it wasn't, I wasn't that depressed person walking around the house. They'd see it, and my wife would see it every so often, but in general it wasn't. And that's kind of dangerous because it masks the underlying problem that there was there was a serious issue here. Because even with the drink, because, you know, I was a very social drinker, and it was only towards the last few genesis that I became a jerk. You know? Right. And, but most of the time that didn't happen. I never got to that point. Right. So people saw the happy drunk. Nobody, you know, when I got sober, people didn't come 
couldn't believe that I was an alcoholic. You know, you fell down the stairs. Yeah, that was after way too many drinks, huge amount of drink when I fell down the stairs in Philadelphia, right next to uh, Valley Forge, and um, I uh, fractured my skull, bleeding on the brain, uh, two different places. They couldn't stop the bleeding. I was medevaced, which is you know the helicopter took me to the trauma center. I was on the operating table in a half an hour, and I was very lucky if I didn't. Uh, I, I happened to be near Lockheed Martin, which is an airport or a um, defense, contract. defense contractor. So they were able to bring him to Chopper within a few minutes, you know. And um, so that's what saved my life. And uh, it was touch and go for a week. And um, I think it was five days in ICU, but they couldn't stop the bleeding. And then all of a sudden it stopped. And um, but even after that, I went back and I drank. The surgeon told me it could kill me, but just shows you the power of addiction. Within about six months, I was back drinking, and it got worse. And then um, it was a few years after that. Then I said, you know, I just said to myself, I'm risking everything I have. I'm risking my family, my career, and I'm, you know, putting my children in danger, putting them through something awful. I could be end up in prison myself. And then that's I woke up one morning and said, I'm done. You know, and I called up a friend who'd been sober for ten years, and he helped me get sober. And um, you know, I didn't really go the AA route that much. I went to a few meetings, but I did move to the twelve steps, and that was very that worked for me. My friend took me through that, and uh, so here I am. Um, I know you're about to go on stage and do a gig, and you and I are going to continue our chat at the end briefly mm-hmm. because I want to talk about shining the light. I want to talk okay. the, the the other the, the where we're at now. Yeah. But we 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 can't keep you from going up. But so we're going to share another piece of music while you're doing your three-hour gig. But, but it's, so what are we going to share? Uh, 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 oh, I don't know, but there's a lovely piece of music. Um, uh, it's from my first album, and it's called September Skies, and it's about 9/11. And um, I was teaching at New York University at that point, and uh, I lived in New Jersey, a small little town, and we lost six people in 9/11. So I think it's a beautiful song. So maybe that that'd be a good one. You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home abroad, and we're rejoining Seamus Keller after he has put on a most fantastic three, three and a half hour performance uh, in a sweltering heat. And uh, we're going to talk about Shine the Light because the light was shining on you for the three hours or so. <laughs> Shine the Light, your um, memoir of your, um, your struggle. Talk to me about it. Well, Shine the Light, the reason I chose that title for the memoir was because it covers a lot of territory. One of the things I want to do is shine the light on the problem of uh, depression, anxiety, and the lack of support for people that struggle with that kind of um, affliction. And also addiction, which is a massive problem, not just uh, in the States, but also in Canada, all over. And uh, so the idea is to shine the light on um, those topics 
sports addiction and mental illness and kind of destigmatize the thing and help people that are struggling and it's a good reason with the book kind of give some concrete advice how you can recognize that you may be in trouble and where to go to get help so that's number one and then the second thing is trying to like kind of to talk openly about the subject of um, addiction and mental illness and you know when people see me talking about it they say you seem so normal and that's the whole purpose it's just I, t- I talk about it even today here during my show I talked a little bit about it mm-hmm. you know it's, I'm an entertainer so I'm not going to talk for an hour about addiction um, and, and getting paid to entertain people but I can do it just in a, like less than five minutes and it made a big difference you know and to that end uh, one of the strings to your bow is as a motivational speaker yeah. on, on this topic yeah yeah and that's you know I, I used to be a speechwriter when I was in the corporate world for a few years so I have that skill and I was a journalist so the idea is that uh, when I do the motivational talks I love talking in front of people uh, you know that's what I do for a living so I, can, I combine a little bit of music into my talks but the basic theme behind my talks is look here's something we don't talk about enough let's talk openly about it and uh, let's get you help if you need it that's, that's the bottom line for many people during the last three years during the pandemic their mental health suffered mm-hmm. um, and um, it was also difficult to reach people but just at the same time you used um, on the online platforms to try to reach people and help there as well yeah I, I was very kind of lucky during the pandemic in some ways like everybody I had my dark days but the bottom line was um, you know I got a call from Texas A&M I used to do some motivational talks there and they asked me to help out their students and their uh, faculty and I did some just talks Zoom talks but then they asked me to start teaching a class on mental wellness so all of a sudden now I'm back teaching which I love to do and uh, so I do that now uh, they just I finished my I think two and a half years and they just gave me a three year contract so I'll be doing it for a while and I absolutely love doing it and it doesn't interfere with my music or anything like that because I can do it from anywhere right. and I'm on the road it's only a two week class I want to switch gears on that because a similar situation was back after 9-11 you were teaching then yeah. and you were presented with a situation with a class where you were in there uh, before 9-11 and you went yeah. back into the same students after 9-11 totally different dynamic totally different dynamic it was very hard the kids I, I was more like a counsellor than a teacher especially for the first month or so afterwards but we you know I told the students that first day after 9-11 I said look we're going to make it through this right now you think you're never going to get through it I said trust me we will get through it you'll be laughing you'll be joking you'll be, you'll be teasing me and you'll be in a few months time I said just hang in there we're going to take a week by week and that's it it's like the whole you know with the cliche with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, you know one day at a time and that's it you know with grief or with anything like that mental illness you just take it one day at a time and it, 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 the worst thing people do is look at the whole picture and say oh things are never going to get better you know and let it pile up in them and then that sends you into a tailspin and that's when it's hard to get out of that 
I've noticed with our daughter and our grandkids that there is a move to younger parents nowadays to help children to identify and name their emotions. Mm. A thing you and I never had. Yeah. How do you see that? I think it's good. I think it's... I, I know my own kids. My daughter, she's uh, 22. And... Um, turning 22 and she's she's great just about we can have every kind of conversation she was talking to her friends lately and her, her friends have allowed different kind of issues uh, mental health issues and they say oh we never talked to our parents about that and my daughter Norris got talked to my dad all the time and it's not like it's the, t- the topic of conversation at every dinner table that's not what it's about but there's plenty of times we all sit around the dinner table and we'll be talking about somebody we know that has depression or, you know, bipolar or whatever. And um, we just, it's a very open conversation. Mm. And there's no kind of, you know, there's no stigma attached to it. And I think if, if I did one thing well, my, my wife as well, yeah, that's what we've helped to do is to have them talking openly. And, and you know, whatever labels it is, and I don't know, you know, what people are calling what, what things, but it doesn't matter, but just the fact that people are talking. Is, is, is the key. That's it. When you stop, when, when you stop talking, that's when you're in trouble. Right, right. And, and we grew up in an environment where uh, uh, children should be seen and not heard, and yep. um, there's an awful lot of things were not talked about, and there was an awful lot of shame. Yep. We did, and that's. Um, I think that's changed uh, dramatically. And just because it's changed doesn't mean that we don't. There's got more work to be done. Uh, Ireland is much better, but still in Ireland, there's, there's a little bit of the stigma there and um, but I think it's better and I think it, there's been a lot of high profile like celebrities uh, sadly sometimes it takes a celebrity to uh, bring focus be it AIDS or uh, mental illness like for instance when Robin Williams mm-hmm. passed you know he suffered depression but he also suffered addiction and lots of things mm-hmm. but it did get people kind of talking you know it's like Michael J. Fox and Parkinson's you know it's like mm-hmm. and that's okay I don't have any problem with that. Mm-hmm. I don't care how attention is drawn to something once it is, you know. Um, Seamus, um, before we wrap up, because we're going to have to wrap up, um, do you miss Ireland? Uh, I do, yeah. But I'm very happy with my life in America. I never second guess it, ever. Mm-hmm. And um, I love, like, I'm going back in June uh, for a month, and I can't wait. But I know that at the end of that trip, I'll be very happy to get back here to my life in America. Mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate, you know, that I, I have a great relationship with my four sisters and their families. I'm very close with them, and um, it's never changed, and it's much easier nowadays because of, you know, FaceTime, Zoom, all these different things that we have. When I came to America first, it was one mm-hmm. phone call a year, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I, I built a really good life for myself here. My kids are here, and, uh, you know, I, I really just live in the moment, and I'm very happy where I am. Uh, I still love Ireland. I love everything about it. I'm very proud to be from Galway. And, um, you know, I, I have great friendships over there, but my life is in America. And, Seamus, if anyone wants 
to find out more about you, where can they, what are they online coordinates and where can we yeah, direct I them? That, I, I'd say the best thing is to go on shamelessk.com. That's S-E-A-M-U-S-K.com. And my phone number is on there. My email is on there. Anything, if anybody needs to get a hold of me, somebody that's struggling, mm-hmm. it, please tell them to reach out to me. And it's but just, that's probably the easiest thing. And that's got my music. It's got and the book, the the book and everything. Yeah, the and yeah, it's, you know, the three albums and I know we didn't have time to really get into the um, logistics of how you got around to um, producing the albums because uh, yeah. I know there's stories about that as I said earlier on when we were chatting we could chat for hours yeah but hopefully we get to do it again sometime <laughs> I think the, the most important thing we talked about and that's you know that uh, you know I'm a musician that love to do what I do we do about 180 shows a year and um, you know somebody who struggles with mental health issues as many people have mm-hmm. and addiction as many people have and uh, but I, I, I got help and I'm in you know thankfully um, I'm healthy today I'm living my best life I'm enjoying myself and uh, you know there's no guarantees tomorrow I could wake up and back in hospital but I, I don't think like that I just think for today I'm very feel very very blessed James Keller it's been a real pleasure and an honor talking with you and you too thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk about this important stuff Thank you.